Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. The Democrats have walked away from us. They have walked away from police officers, and they've walked away from the innocent people we protect. Democratic politicians have surrendered our streets and our institutions. The loudest voices have taken control, and our so-called leaders are scrambling to catch up with them. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, here with Ezra Klein. Um, obviously, crime and law and order themes have been in the in the news a bit lately, uh, thanks to President Trump. And, and I think most of the conversation around that has been a very sort of political focus, like, can this win the election uh, for, for, for Trump? And there's been a fair amount of stuff about looting and vandalism and rioting in a, in a couple of cities. Uh, but I really wanted today to sort of like put that whole conversation, which is like very partisan and very a little weird and, and meta aside um, and talk about something that I think is more concrete and real, which is that in most American cities, to the best of our knowledge, there has been a, a large increase, very large in some cases, increase in the number of people getting shot and accordingly a large increase in the number of people being murdered. Um, and it's, you know, not in 100 percent obvious why that is, uh, but it's a but it's a big striking trend. Uh, we've had it here in D.C. where I live. It's certainly present in in New York, where most of the media is. I don't know. I didn't actually look up crime stats in, in Oakland, um, but it's, it's up it, a little bit. It, it's not a, it's not like what you're seeing in, say, Chicago or D.C. or Milwaukee, but um, but it's up a bit. Yeah, so it's it's not an entirely uniform pattern. There are some cities, I guess, like Oakland, where there's a, a small increase, um, and a lot where there's a sort of a big increase. Uh, Herman Lopez did a you know article for for Vox, just sort of summing up the the statistics on it. Um, this is really not what I think President Trump or anybody has been talking about in politics, uh, but it is, I think, what a lot of people are talking about in their sort of local communities. This is big on a, on Nextdoor uh, in, in my neighborhood, for example, and I know people in, in New York who are concerned about it. And, you know, it just it seems like a more sort of, I don't know, it's a fairly important policy question uh, to the extent that we sort of know anything about what to do about it. 
So I think there are a couple of things to start with here. And I think we should actually begin with the data. And and I really want to mm-hmm. plug Herman's piece. We're going to put this in show notes. It's an excellent piece, both about what we know and really importantly in a piece like this, what we don't know. So we don't have excellent data yet. What we have is data coming out of cities being collated in a couple different ways. And as Matt says, there is a increase in uh, murders, uh, which is very significant and very, very concerning. There does not appear to be an increase overall in violent crime, but it is very possible that simply uh, reflects less violent crime being reported because of COVID, because of um, you know people not wanting to go out or wanting people in their homes. So it is possible that uh, the increase in murders is foretelling the increase in other violent crime and murders are just reported much more reliably because like even if there's a pandemic going on and you don't want people coming to your house, if somebody's killed, you you let the you let somebody know. Um, so there's a there's this big increase in murders. We don't know what is happening outside the cities. So there's a lot of conversation about like, what is happening in these blue cities, you know, with their Democratic mayors. And it's worth noting that uh, there are some cities with Republican mayors. They're also seeing increases in murder rates. Uh, so this does not really actually appear to be a blue or red governance question. But it's also not clear what is happening in other kinds of areas simply because we don't have the data yet. So whether this is restricted to cities or not is an open question that we can't yet answer. One of the things that Herman's piece does really well is talk through, one, we are just much worse at knowing what drives crime up and down than one would think. In the 90s, there's this huge drop in crime. And it happens in a lot of different jurisdictions all at once. It happens in jurisdictions doing very different things. So on the one hand, you have a lot of reporting and narrative uh, and narrative in the 90s about broken windows theory and what New York is doing because all the media is in New York and there's a big drop in crime there at that time. Um, and they do have a big drop in crime. But then there are all these other places that don't do what New York is doing and also have a big drop in crime. So like people talk about maybe it was lead. I mean, there are a hundred different theories and we still don't really know what drove either the huge increase or the huge decrease. And so similarly, we don't know right now. And then on top of that, you have the pandemic, which could on the one hand be what is driving it and also could be affecting our ability to know what's driving it in all kinds of different ways. Like it's possible the pandemic, either because of the economic dislocation it's creating or just putting people at home with time on their hands and frustration and anger is just creating a more violent situation um, out in the streets. Uh, It's also possible that it's driving it or um, mudding the waters in some other way or making it harder to figure out what is going on. There's some theories that there are very good crime intervention strategies that require a lot of face-to-face work, right? So these crime disruption programs where you have community leaders talking to people who are at high risk for retaliatory, for retaliatory violence, that doesn't translate over to Zoom very well. So the one of the frustrating things about this situation is we don't know what is driving it. Um, and like, we don't even know really if what is happening is something that is simply an epiphenomenon, uh, a horrible epiphenomenon of the pandemic, or it relates to some other set of uh, policies, or, you know, it's a, it's a effect of, um, the protests and either police pulling back or, um, or, or citizens refusing to call the police. Like there are a hundred things that could be going on right here. And we actually don't know which ones to blame or fix. I, I want to emphasize the sort of data quality issues here. This is something I, I talked about a little bit if you um, check out the the episode with Jennifer Doliak, but it's it's a real shame uh, the, the way we do this, right? Because so so there's this narrative out there about like crime in Democrat cities. Um, but again, the issue is that 
There is no timely national reporting of crime statistics. Uh, if you go to the Justice Department to try to get an authoritative view of like what's the deal with with murder in the United States, uh, the most recent information that they will give you is the 2018 Uniform Crime Reports. They should have the 2019 data uh, pretty soon. Uh, but we there is no real time or even close to real time reporting, right? So instead, what you have is researchers can sort of hand assemble information about crime. And the way they normally do that is they look at big cities uh, because big cities, A, just have like more government infrastructure. They also have newspapers and things like that. So you can get a count. You can see how many murders have there been this year in Chicago and how many murders were there last year in Chicago. Now, if you want to know for a random town in Illinois, you can't get either of those numbers. So there's really no way to tell if crime has risen this year. Uh, but so for a big city, you can do it. And then people will look it up. And so they'll say, OK, here's 25 you know, major cities. Uh, of course, if you look at 25 or 50 large American cities, you're just going to find that they almost all have Democratic mayors. Right. Um, so there's like three exceptions to this. Oklahoma City, uh, Miami and Jacksonville. Murder is, in fact, up in both Miami and Jacksonville, though not in Oklahoma City. Uh, so to the extent that there's like there is such a thing as information about what's happening in Republican jurisdictions, it seems like murder is also up there. Um, but they're all in Florida. Right. It, it, so it's very eccentric. And it makes it essentially impossible to diagnose in the short term what the causes are, because you need that deeper information. We can say, okay, the 90s crime drop is not really explained, but the sheer scope of it has actually started to limit the range of plausible explanations, right? The reason lead theory has started to get so prominent is that the 90s crime drop happened literally everywhere. Right. So the explanation has to be something that changed everywhere. And the switch from uh, leaded to unleaded gasoline, you know, is that right. And so maybe that lead crime link is is, is not the right answer. I, I'm a believer, but I mean, maybe it's not. But what's obvious is that it isn't a like policy specific thing because it's happening everywhere. And for now, we don't we just don't know that. Right. It, it could be something policy specific or it might not be. And it would actually be really good to know if there's a rise in murders in rural areas. Right. Because so much of the dialogue happening right now is around race and policing. And it would be a helpful counterpoint to find some very politically conservative, overwhelmingly white jurisdictions where like race and policing stuff is not really happening or changing in 2020 and see what's going on there, right? Because they do have a pandemic there. They do have economic problems there, right? And and that would give us a lot of clarity that is sort of currently lacking. Um, so we're just left to, to kind of look at, at the urban situation and people are sort of rushing to, well, either it's the pandemic or it's something to do with the protests. Something that that I think lends um, lends fuel to the the protest oriented implications is that the increase in murders has been particularly notable in Minneapolis, which is obviously the the epicenter of George Floyd related controversies, and also notably has been absent in Baltimore, uh, which had a big crime surge after Freddie Gray's death and the protests associated with that. And I know that a lot of um, 
people in the community in Baltimore, people involved in social justice, racial justice, criminal justice reform type issues in Baltimore um, felt that 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 situation had backfired and like acted very consciously this time around to like try to prevent a depolicing uh, type scenario. But I mean, the point is, we don't really know, although we know some things about crime in general. Yeah, and you can look at, say, a chart of Chicago, um, and there's a spike after the stay-at-home order and then a bigger and more sustained spike after the start of protests. So correlation, not causation, but there's evidence that would make you look at this pretty seriously. One of the things, though, that Herman talks about in the piece and that is a little bit like the lead and gasoline connection is not like the sexiest explanation for what could be going on here, but in some ways is the most straightforward is simply the pandemic and that the best thing you could do to one, possibly bring crime back down um, or murders back down in this case, two, to make policing more effective and actually safe. And I'll get to that in a second. And three, to make it clear what is even going on here is to do a capable job on the pandemic. So what you have is a situation right now where people are heavily out of work. They are like heavily locked in their homes. Like all that makes people angry and upset and makes places into tinderboxes. There's talk about the pandemic disrupting drug trades and other things in, in the informal economy. So all of that is a problem. Then you have a situation where the pandemic makes a lot of social supports, policing strategies, and other things that relied on a lot of face-to-face contact impossible or dangerous to do. So you have, you know, an after-school program for at-risk youth, and now you don't because, like, that's not going to work on Zoom, or at least mostly won't work on Zoom. The pandemic has also been very dangerous to cops themselves. They're all, there's all this talk at the RNC about the thin blue line and the lives of police officers, but the coronavirus has killed many more police recently than um, violence actually has. And of course, it's, it is it's also killed, true. It's killed more police than than all causes combined. Um, so. All causes combined. So you're, I mean, police are out there, right? Like they are essential workers, like they have to be in contact with people. So they're they're like out there with the possibility for, for, for catching this. So... It is not a, like, I don't think the answer anybody exactly wants to, there's a huge murder spike going on in American cities, is we should do a better job getting the coronavirus under control. But as a first step, that actually is what you would want to do. Because almost everything else you can think of to do, like all the, like, let's say you are a big believer in um, the cure violence form of intervention, which I'm a believer in. I think the evidence behind that is pretty strong. That's where you have like local civic leaders and people who are um, important in the community um, being deployed to either moments of violence or the aftermath of violence and and talking to people. And you're basically trying to stop the contagion of violence. So there's a lot of modeling that basically shows you can model murder almost where you can model a virus. Like somebody gets shot and then other people get shot and it like passes person to person in terms of people who are uh, linked to that initial shooting. So you can do things to disrupt that, but you need people to be able to meet with each other face to face. Um, You need people to be able to be out there. You need people to be able to know what's going on in the community. And all of that has been very significantly degraded. So this goes a little bit to this big question of political responsibility here. I mean, obviously, the Republican narrative is simply that Democrats have either pushed or permitted cities to fall into anarchy um, and, 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 and lawlessness and murder, and that they've told the police they can't do their jobs. And now you have this huge violence spike as a result. I don't think that narrative is true on a lot of levels. Um, I have a, a 
podcast come out with Leroy Rigueur uh, about, uh, in, in part about um, the history of, of protests and riots and this kind of backlash. And I mean, one thing that really comes through in that is that it is like, you don't really have great options as an elected official here. The people in these protests, by the time something has happened that has enraged the community that much, they're not acting as electoral actors. It is very hard to know like what you're supposed to do effectively as a mayor that will de-escalate and not escalate the situation quickly. Um, the best thing to do is not have this happen in the first place. But to the extent like there is things we can do politically on a policy level that would really work, Donald Trump really like is in charge of the nation's coronavirus response. He's doing a terrible job of it. That is destroying all kinds of downstream things. The economy is the one we talk about most often, but it does seem to me that it is at least suggestively likely that our ability to keep order and respond effectively to crime and then just do a hundred other things in cities, suburbs, wherever is another one. And there are dozens beyond that, right? Like being able to see your grandparents is another one. Like the coronavirus has disrupted life so dramatically that everything is working poorly. And it just wouldn't be that surprising if crime is another casualty of this. Right. Though, I mean, I think the the reason to look at not the protest per se, but at least the um, the uproar around uh, George, George Floyd, in addition to the pandemic, is that prior research on these police violence scandals would lead you to predict uh, a rise in, in crime. Right. And this is a debate that's gotten as many things do. Um, it's it's become polarized in a way that I think is a little bit odd. But so, you know, for one example, you have Roland Fryer's a bit of a, uh, you know, contrarian uh, kind of researcher on on topics related to race. He has a paper looking at a, a number of cities in the past. So solid data. And, you know, he shows that basically when you have like a big uproar about uh, police brutality, that crime sort of very predictably rises uh, subsequently, and that also police officers do fewer stops, things like that. Um, this is something that conservatives often emphasize to say, I, I guess their idea being that, well, this shows it's bad, right? People, people complain about the police, and then the police don't work as hard, and then crime goes up. I think another way of looking at it would be like, this is very irresponsible of police departments to just like stop doing their jobs if people get mad at them for screwing something up, right? Like, I, I don't know, like, I, I don't like it when people yell at me because I made a mistake in an article, um, but it happens. I make mistakes. People yell at me when I make mistakes. I'm sure that I have had the emotional reaction to criticism of being like, well, fuck this. Like, I'm not even going to bother. But like, that's not good journalism, right? Like, if I asked anyone, if I if I asked my editor, if I asked my editor's boss, if I asked a journalism professor, if I asked a person on the street, it's like, Matt, when you get criticism, should you respond by sulking and not doing your job? They would say like, no, right? Um, but this is a big thing. I mean, it's it's out there in the literature. Um, it's called depolicing. Heather McDonald, like a like a real right winger from the Manhattan Institute, she's big on this. She has a book called The War on Cops, right? And her whole thing is like, we shouldn't complain uh, about things the police do. Then there's this sort of closely related set of research, which is called uh, they they call it legal cynicism. Uh, and and Bokar Ba has a a good study. Um, Looking specifically at Chicago, uh, which is also in the Friar paper, and he finds, like, on a high level, the exact same thing that Friar finds. Um, his take, right, to be—it's it, a more 
straightforwardly progressive take is the police do something bad. The bad conduct by the police is widely publicized as a result of this new information about bad police stuff. Uh, people become less cooperative with the police and then policing is less effective. And people in the community can get like really geared up about this this debate, but it's not that different in its upshot, I think, which is that when you have these scandals, what people want is for the quality of the policing to improve. But at least in the short term, that is not what tends to happen. Right. And that's bad. Yeah. I really want to emphasize this conclusion here. It is not the desired outcome of anybody, but it appears to be what you get. And that's that itself is the problem, it seems to me. Yeah. This debate is super angry between people because folks have a view that which side of it is right is really going to drive something in policy. But as I read it on both sides, it simply is saying, there is a very bad outcome that happens when the police are delegitimized through acts of police brutality. Right. And whether you think the mechanism through which that happens is, to put it even like generously to the police, they don't feel safe doing their jobs because either they think um, they will like be uh, run out of town or brought up on charges or possibly attacked by a crowd because an arrest uh, goes wrong. Or because um, people in the community don't want to call the police on something because they're worried the police will uh, kill them or arrest them um, for no reason or plant evidence on them. Like, it is incredibly dangerous for the police to lose the support of a community. Like, and, and then there's a weird move, and you, you brought this up around Heather McDonald. You see this a lot in right-wing discussion of the police, where somehow it is the community's responsibility not to lose faith in the police. It is like on the community to not be upset at the police if they do something that is um, incredibly violent or, or, or unjustified, like Eric Garner's murder or George Floyd's murder. And it's just very weird. I mean, I think if you put this into any other situation, like you would see how weird it is. Like, so go back a couple of years, right? There's a very famous situation where a certain number, I think it was bottles of uh, Tylenol or aspirin, it's one of the two are toxic in some way. There's like some, I don't remember if it was a fear that somebody had been injecting like a poison into them or like maybe they'd been uh, mis misproduced. Um, I didn't look it up. I did not realize I'd be talking about this on the show. So I didn't like look up this old thing from the 90s. But there was a, a, a huge fear all of a sudden that this medication was some number of it was going to be poisonous to people. And then very famously, the company did a full global recall. And like, this is considered a great thing the company did because while it was on some level a huge overreaction to what was just going to be a couple of bad cases of the medication, it was nevertheless really, really important that people kept faith in this producer of medication in general. Now, like the analogy to the way this gets treated in police is like, it could have been really bad, like take aspirin, right, which is really important for preventing heart attacks and a bunch of other things. It's a very, very important medication beyond just headaches. Uh, it could be really bad if people stop taking aspirin, even for a little while, just because there's a recall or something going on or they've lost faith in it. And so like, you could be like sitting there wagging your finger at people who are now scared that a medication might kill them, even if it's a low likelihood of the medication being uh, being poisoned. But the understanding in the consumer market of things is that it is the responsibility of like the 
provider of a service to keep the public's faith in the service. Like if you are a company and something happens, even if it's not really your fault, but it makes it so people don't believe your product is safe anymore. Like the question for you is like, how do you make that not true? And the weird thing we that happens in politics, um, particularly around policing, like you particularly in the Republican Party and the right around policing, is it reverses that. There's like a, a belief that it is the uh, community's responsibility to keep faith in the police, even if the police are doing, you know, not every day, but like in, in instances they see regularly dangerous, terrible things, violent things to them. And like, that's just wrong. Like, uh, it, it should be like, it's an important thing. Like, if if you are not a police abolitionist, it is a really important thing that communities have faith and believe in and um, want to work with their police departments. And I've talked to like members of police departments and, and, and police chiefs about this. And like the good ones think about this all the time. Like, how do you build good community relations is a huge question for good police chiefs and good police departments. And how do you demand communities stop being angry at police is not a, uh, it's like not a, a useful way to do this. And as you can see in this literature, it doesn't work. Like whatever the mechanism here, police being afraid to police because the community is angry at them or the community being afraid of police because they're angry at them or both things happening simultaneously, the way to stop it is for there to be a much, much higher level of priority placed on never having anything happen that is going to make communities lose faith in you in the first place, which is a totally normal way things operate like in the modern world. It just is not, it is somehow not something oftentimes I think because we place criminals in this category, this other category of like, like as if you could just say from the beginning, like this person is a criminal and as such, like, like, like whatever happens to them is their fault. Um, it like disrupts that normal way of thinking about things. Well, but it's it's also just it's a it's a recklessness, right? I mean, I thought this was not a big part of the Republican convention, but I thought if you want to understand the dynamics around crime and policing, the speech that Patrick Lynch, the uh, head of the New York City Police Union, gave was a really it's a it's a landmark text, you know, because he comes in right and he's he's got the speech and it's it's if you've seen a lot of Patrick Lynch stunts over the years. It's actually a fairly restrained speech. Um, and he's talking about, you know, this rise in shootings in New York and how sad it is and, you know, how it impacts many people and how this is a big problem for, for people of color, people in low income communities. And so you're like waiting for the part where he's going to explain like, like what he's going to do about this. And it just is like, well, this is happening because the Democrats have betrayed us. And in a totally nonspecific way, right? He doesn't say, okay, Bill de Blasio instituted this policy, which made it impossible for us to do X, and this is bad. He doesn't say Andrew Cuomo instituted a policy that did something. And note the contrast, right? Something that did, in fact, happen in New York City a few years ago is that they were made to stop doing uh, stop and frisks, right? And so a theory was put forward by the NYPD that if they didn't do stop and frisks, more people would carry weapons on the street and there would be more lethal violence. And that was a completely like co cogent theory, right? And like, had there been a huge increase in gunplay after the end of stop and frisk, I think you would have to look at it and say, okay, maybe ending this was the right idea, but it was costly. But that didn't happen. 
there was a specific theory, a specific mechanism, and then it didn't pan out. Like, they were wrong about that. Uh, now, there really is an increase in crime, but he can't quite say what the what the reason is in any kind of specific way. And then he says, like, well, we should all go vote for Donald Trump. And, you know, a lot of people are going to vote for Donald Trump. Almost nobody in New York City is going to vote for Donald Trump. And the people in New York City who do vote for Donald Trump are not going to be primarily the people living in the high crime neighborhoods, right? So what is the point as a stakeholder in law enforcement in New York City? Like, what is he accomplishing here? Like, how does this help people feel better about the situation? How does this even get like if he doesn't want his members to be just like yelled at by members of the community? Like, how does going to do a Trump endorsement at Trump's country club in New Jersey, like, how does it help that, right? And it's this kind of real identity politics off the rails kind of thing that's completely detached from how you would think, you know, you were talking in a commercial context, but like, just talk in a political context, right? Like, you want people to like you more, you have to say like, well, okay, what is the audience here? Like, what do those people care about? What can I say to them that would be in some way helpful here? And he's doing the opposite. And like, he didn't talk even like at that speech about how the NYPD's record on use of force is actually much more restrained than the average department, which is something I would say if I was involved with the NYPD and wanted people to feel better about it. And it's really, I don't know, like, I I mean, I, I do think that it would behoove progressives to demonstrate some more concern about just the fact of crime rising. Uh, but conservative take, and particularly the take from inside the law enforcement universe on this, it doesn't make any sense because they're essentially positing that just everyone should ignore it when they screw up, right? That like it would just be better to not ever mention that. And that doesn't I mean, even if that's true, like, well, that's not going to happen. That's not how the world works. Um, And everybody deals with this. Like, people work in places, mistakes happen, colleagues screw things up, and, like, you have to address it, right? And they keep just sort of, like, lampshading how bad it becomes to have this kind of total breakdown and, and crisis, uh, but they're not they're not getting anywhere. Uh, we are overdue for, for a break, though. Yeah, and I, then when I want to come back and talk about a different failure, but like much more, I think, like specific failure of blue state governance. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media. Pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context. And it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. N-A-P-P. 
Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Okay, so I live in the great state of California, best state in the nation. Um, one of the uh, issues, though, that California has is that, particularly in its major metropolitan areas, you cannot afford a home. There is very little stock. Um, it is very hard to build. Homes are incredibly, insanely expensive. I mean, this is particularly true in the Bay Area, also true in Los Angeles, so hard in Orange County. I mean, it has just gotten really, really bad. Uh, there's also a secondary problem, which is that because it is so hard to own a home in California and afford a home in like the places where a lot of people work, it has pushed them out into further, uh, like more wildernessy areas, right? So they can like get something cheaper, even if they have a terrible commute. That's bad for them because commutes are terrible. It's one of the things we know really hurts human happiness. It's bad for the environment because commuting is bad for the environment. But it has also made the uh, rising California wildfire problem much worse because those wildfires now threaten many more people's homes. Wildfires are bigger. Um, you're messing up more habitats. Like housing in California is a disaster top to bottom. It's behind these huge levels of homelessness. Uh, there is like nothing good I can say about it. And it, that has been true for a long time. When Donald Trump and others like get on the stage at the RNC and talk about how like these blue states are a disaster. A bunch of things they say are disastrous about them are not. But this is um, it's a disaster in some others, but it's really, really bad here in California. So last couple of years, Californian politicians have begun talking about addressing this. Uh, there's been uh, a lot of work uh, around uh, an initiative called SB 50 by a guy named Scott Wiener. You've heard of this from, from Matt many times that would really, really restructure zoning in California, particularly around transit. That has failed continuously. It failed this year too. But around like that kind of big headline bill, which is sort of like the, uh, not literally, but it, it sort of acts like the Medicare for all of the housing debate in California. There's been like a lot of like efforts now to put out like the compromise bills and the um, lead of the Senate this year created a coalition of, I think it was seven. There was like a gang of seven sort of middle of the road on housing Democrats, not quite NIMBYs, not quite YIMBYs. They came up with some compromise bills. Like she had a bill that would have pushed, made it a lot easier to do duplexes in California and cut up lots. And not literally everything, but almost everything failed. And in particular, the big bill at this point towards the end of the session was this duplex bill, which was, again, supported by the president of the California Senate. And what happened there is the uh, assembly leader, uh, Anthony Rendon, who assembly is sort of the house of the California Congress, 
he was initially holding the bill at the end of the session and nobody quite knew why. So the California Yimbies like spun up this campaign to free this duplex bill, which he eventually did, but super late in uh, like on the day the session was ending. So it actually did pass out of the assembly, but then it needed to go to the Senate for a concurrence vote and like it was too late. And so by the time it was going there, like it was dead because like the session had expired and like you can't pass a bill after the session expires. So like somebody described it to me who's involved in Yimby stuff as um, he released a hostage, but like out of an airplane over a volcano. So like the hostage just died. And I just want to like say as clearly as I can, this is an extraordinary failure of governance that should make like progressives in California and Democrats in California embarrassed and ashamed. We have a disastrous situation in terms of housing here. We have known this for years. It is making our environmental problems worse. It is making our uh, climate problems worse. It is making economic inequality worse. It is making people's lives worse. And year after year after year, the um, politicians here do nothing. Uh, Gavin Newsom, the governor, did his big speech on housing. I think it was a state of the state last year. Like nothing really happened after that. They've made some changes. It's like, I don't want to literally say nothing. And But like, this was an extraordinarily depressing year in the California legislature on this. And to a very great extent, like it exposes a certain level of one, like progressive misgovernance, right? We also don't have high-speed rail in this state. Like I think one should ask themselves and it should be something the left grapples with and Democrats grapple with, which is, if democratic governance is so great, how come in California where they like own everything and run everything, it isn't better? And then two, like a lot of just the progressivism in California is phony. It's like they you hate Donald Trump and you put a thing in your front yard about how in this house we believe science is real and refugees are welcome and black lives matter and like da 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 and everybody's a person and trans people are people and like the whole thing, but you can't build a house. Um, and so people can't live there. And so it's like, it's exclusionary progressivism. It just kind of makes me sick. Like I am, like, I am very mad at California and like, this is, you can't tell people progressive governance works when it doesn't work. Like, and here it is not working. I now, I now want to defend the good name of California though, which is that <laughs> sometimes in, sometimes in politics, I mean, I, I don't disagree with, with anything that, that you said there, but like sometimes what happens in politics is like, um, you know, you're you're looking for keys under the lamppost, and the the nice thing about California housing politics is that uh, this is on the political agenda. Like the governor of the state gave a big speech in which he said it was important to do something about housing. Uh, the president of the state senate had this duplex bill that she was pushing. The bill did ultimately get majority support in both houses of the legislature. Like it is very unfortunate that it died and it's very frustrating. And I know people in California who work on housing issues are mad as hell and and rightly so. Um, it is striking that there like literally nothing is happening on housing in New York, uh, New Jersey, Connecticut. Almost nothing is happening in Massachusetts. Um, nothing in Maryland, right? Like on, on the East Coast, there's not even like talk but no action. There's just like nothing. Um, Massachusetts passed like the most comically timid uh, housing reform that I've ever heard of, which is that it used to be that for a town to permit more housing required a supermajority vote. 
Um, and now you are allowed to allow housing by majority vote. Still, nobody will or does, uh, but at least in in theory, it it could happen. Um, we also we did have good news, right? The the Turner Center at Berkeley put out a report actually just this morning uh, before it, it got into our our planning loop. Um, but they showed that a lot of accessory dwelling units got built in 2019 in California uh, because they they changed. That the has been a very successful. That has been a very successful housing change. So so that happened. So and they passed a new bill in this session to just like even further strengthen uh, the ADU's bill. And an accessory dwelling unit is like, um, I don't know, it's like you turn your garage into a small apartment um, or you build a little thing out back in your yard. Uh, basically, um, yeah, it's it's heavily used. It's heavily used, actually, just to make um little like offices for people, right? It's like a, it's like a spot. It's like you can, sometimes people will like Airbnb it out, but it's like, like at best, it's sort of like a little studio out mm-hmm. in your yard. Um, and then it's just a way, it, what it's really done is make it, it more than I would say it alleviates housing crisis. So it can a little bit. It has like, it's like one reason it's super popular is that people buy houses in the Bay Area and they spent a lot and the house is pretty small. Um, and like this allows them to make it bigger without a huge regulatory uh, nightmare. This is not going to like solve problems in California, but it did pass in California and it has helped. And critically, this is like a housing framing that is very favorable to the interests of the sort of typical um, homeowner with a mortgage. And it's just crazy to me that the other high cost states don't copy this legislation, uh, which California now has passed like a lot of ADU bills uh, because they keep being sabotage efforts but like the state legislature has clearly decided that like this is good they want people to be allowed to build uh adus um people like it it's like the politics are totally solid and like they should just do this uh in in new york they should do it in new jersey they should do it in in connecticut i also wanted to mention the um flip floppy politics of this right which is like this really is the signature policy failure not just of california in particular but really of the the blue states in general and for a while the trump administration was putting out reports saying like hey it's weird that homelessness is increasing as the economy gets stronger and especially weird that it's like only increasing in uh, these very liberal cities and that's because they don't let people build any housing and really you should have more housing be allowed it was not something the president cared about you know but his his team was putting out these reports they were subtly encouraging uh, uh, one good bill in Congress, etc. Um, and then President Trump caught wind of the idea that there was some affordable housing regulation that the Obama administration put out uh, that he could cancel and that was going to save the suburbs from the terror of low-income housing. And he has like Every couple days, he'll like tweet about this. Um, ben Carson went out and like wrote an op-ed in, in the Wall Street Journal about it. So they've now taken something that um, like is a genuinely serious policy failure in in liberal America, and they're defending the failure rather than attacking it. Right? They've got this sort of like yeah, made it, up idea. Specifically, this duplex bill is like right. it's like the antithesis of what they're saying, right? This duplex bill is an attack on single family zoning, which is exactly what um Trump is now saying that he will protect at all costs. Yeah, I- exactly. And um they even like that that St. Louis gun couple uh, at the RNC, they like 
said we have to defend our single family zoning, which it, and save the suburbs. They don't even live in the suburbs. It was a very confusing uh, moment. But it's it's weird because they're essentially, he, you know, Trump is pushing this basically fake narrative that like every liberal city in America is like on fire constantly um, because of anarchists just in one part of Portland and has now ignored the like completely accurate story that there is a housing affordability crisis in huge swaths of liberal America and that the scope of that crisis really like it undoes a lot of what progressives want to do with the welfare state right so like a great thing about living in New York or California or DC is that you know we have Medicaid expansion um we have somewhat more generous TANF programs uh we don't make you jump through a million hoops to get SNAP benefits. But when you look at the census supplemental uh, poverty metric, California is the worst state in the union on that basis, even though California does so much better than most states at like providing income and social supports for low income people. But it's just because housing is such a large share of the household budget and the cost is so high that it completely obliterates like any kind of... um, you know, anything you could do with social welfare, like just having it be affordable to rent a house uh, is such a game changer for people's lives. Yeah, I I would say this circles us back to like me not defending California (laughs) um, and in fact attacking the good name of state I dearly love um, and live in, by the way. (laughs) Two things on this. So one, a little bit like people say that the first job of the mayor, not usually in California, but in other places where they have winter, is to shovel snow. If you can't, as a state, figure out housing and transportation, which are the two things California is unbelievably bad on, you've really failed in the very basic questions of people's lives, right? There are like a lot of important questions that politics deals with and capital gains taxes and a million other things. Like people need a place to live and they need to be able to get around and they need food. And like those are like real basic, like brass tacks of governance. I consider the failure of high-speed rail in California to be like one of the single greatest acts of progressive misgovernance like in my adult lifetime. Not because it was the most consequential, it simply didn't build a faster train that like, you know, like it would have been nice to have. But I mean here the federal government was giving California tens of billions of dollars to do this. And like it just couldn't, right? I mean, for a million reasons, it couldn't deal with the regulatory questions. It couldn't like get the directions right that the train would need to go because, and this is a bigger problem. There's a great political piece about why um, New York can't make Penn Station nicer that I think speaks to the nature of this political problem. But it's like a progressive political governance problem where progressives over time in a kind of post Robert Moses world got very afraid of the way power would be wielded. And so gave all these like tiny little representational groups. Uh, you know, like neighborhood councils and other things, all this say. And it turns out those just get captured by the people who live there at that moment. And the people want to protect the way things are for them at that moment and are totally both like often not representational of the place that they're saying they're defending and then much less of the people who might need to live there in the future or like get through there on a train. And so you just can't do anything. So like California, um, unbelievably bad traffic, like poor public transportation throughout the state and then housing. And there were a bunch of bills this year. Uh, There are like the I was talking to somebody from the Yimby world uh, and like I was getting this rundown of just like 
every one of these bills ranging from like big bills on duplexes to tiny bills about what you could build if you were like a religious organization and you're building affordable housing on your own land and could you get some like zoning restrictions lifted and every bill like it had a weird reason it failed right so the big bill maybe the assembly the speaker of the assembly was trying to get uh, leverage against the uh, pro temp of the Senate, um, or maybe he was just being a jerk for some other reason, or who knows? Like, I do want to call out like the Speaker of the Assembly, like, is the person who held this bill, um, and like deserves like discredit for that. Uh, but even going beyond that, like, there are all these other bills, and everyone has a reason. It's like the building trades didn't like this bill, and like California is completely captured by that. By the way, police reform um, is like stagnant and didn't make its way through the California legislature uh, because of the police unions. So there's just this way in which. Like, I agree with what you're saying, Matt. Um, there has been a lot more attention on the housing problems in California, in part because they're so bad in a place where there's a lot of attention, uh, like Los Angeles and, and, and San Francisco, in part because there's been really amazing organizing here. And I give the like the California Yimby a lot of credit. Um, you had Connor Doherty on the show, like people write books about it. It's like there is more attention on what's going on in California. It's created more like activism and movement. But in the end, like as each of these bills has its own special snowflake of a reason that it didn't pass, like politicians deserve to get judged on whether or not they do the things they say they will do and pass the things they say they support. And like every politician in California says they want to fix the housing problem and they didn't. And not to say some didn't try, some did. And not to say like there weren't specific villains, there were, but like California ultimately operates as a thing, right? Like the California government makes and doesn't make decisions. And year after year, most of the time, the decision it chooses to make is to like let the affordable housing problem here get worse because the interests that are like that, that are at play do not want to make it better. And enough politicians are like willing to abide by that, that like here we are. And like, again, I, I can't say this enough. California like wants to see itself as like a progressive future forward state. And it is at a values level, not progressive. Like it, it is like symbolic progressivism to like put all the shit in your front yard and like vote against Trump and do all these things, but not allow like people to live in your city affordably because like you're worried about your views. It's it's really grim. Um, and like, I think people in California should think about it. And I think politicians in California should feel bad and be made to answer for it. So. We got to take another break. And yeah, I, I want to talk about that sort of higher synthesis part that you were getting to. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just visible. Switch today at visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see visible.com. It was good that you mentioned the like parallel failure of police reform legislation in California because I just a big question that I have had since the beginning of this uh, moment uh, in in American racial dialogue, et cetera, is like, what is going to happen? Like, what is anyone actually doing? And the answers on that front look pretty 
bleak to me, right? Like we have a situation where public education is just like not being provided in a real way across large swaths of the country. In part, that's a consequence of Trump's failures on the virus. But in part, it's a consequence of decisions that policymakers have made. Like in Washington, D.C., where where I live again, like I think we all wish that the Trump administration had handled the virus more responsibly. Uh, but the fact is that like it is the D.C. government that decided you should be able to um, go indoors to bars and restaurants, but that schools are going to be closed, right? We know that's going to have a devastatingly negative impact on all kinds of children, but particularly low-income kids, uh, given the demographics of the city, means overwhelmingly African-American population. Um, We see that crime is going up for whatever reason. Um, That is primarily impacting communities of color in the United States. Um, And at the same time, like, housing, right? Like people are not doing anything on this. Like I saw I saw uh, Chris Murphy on Twitter uh, calling out Trump for his like racist dog whistles on saving the suburbs. Um, but Connecticut is like one of the most insane patterns of exclusionary land use that you will ever see, right? Like Connecticut has these tiny little cities like Bridgeport, Hartford, New Haven, right? These like New Haven's a little different because Yale's there. Um, But these like real like islands of concentrated poverty surrounded by these rich, leafy suburbs. And it's like it's not the federal government's fault that Connecticut cannot produce integrated housing. Um, Also, to your point, you know, with the trains, Connecticut never had anything as ambitious as like a... um, California rail scheme, but it was like their governor had an idea about improving the quality of commuter rail service there. And it seemed pretty good. And then somehow they just like they couldn't get that done. Right. And, you know, California, like they they won't legalize duplexes. And, you know, it's you have to do something at some point if you want to tackle big social problems, including housing is so It's so particularly important because the objection to all of these housing reforms is essentially, well, if you changed the housing rules, then things would be different from how they are now, right? Like your neighborhood would be different if the zoning laws were different. But that's the point, right? Like there's a there's a name for the ideology that says it's bad for things to change. And that's conservatism. And if you want progress, like if you want a more just society, if you want a more equal society, if you want a more integrated society, if you want a more environmentally uh, sustainable society, things have to be different from how they are now, right? Like it's not, it's not like, it's not just somebody else has to change, right? It's like, actually your life will be different in a completely different, fairer society. And if you're not willing to embrace that on some level, then it's like, what, what are you doing? I just did a podcast on the uh, EK show with Andrew Yang, which uh, turned out really well. And I think Weed's listeners will will be into it. But something we talked about there that um, I is like a hobby horse for me in politics, but he really noticed pretty intensely on, on the campaign trail is the way that a lot of democratic like political rhetoric and jockeying is, as he put it, about value statements. So it's like, do you support X? And it's mm-hmm. like, yes. And then somebody asks you, well, what would you do to get it done? And like the answer is nothing. Um, so like as an example here, there's a really, really great group called 51 for 51, which is their DC statehood group. And they've gone around um, demanding of the particularly Democratic presidential candidates 
Uh, would you agree to a rules change saying that statehood should be a 51 vote question in the Senate such that like DC could become the 51st state with 51 votes? And I think they, uh, according to them, what they told me is that every Democrat said yes, but Michael Bennett and Joe Biden and Kamala Harris ultimately said yes. But like whether or not any of them will do it, I'm very skeptical um, at this point. But like what they were getting at is this thing and, 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 and what I think is so smart about what they're doing and so important about what they're doing is Every Democrat says they support D.C. statehood, to my knowledge, um, or just about every Democrat. And yet that is a completely meaningless thing to say. Like, as long as that can be filibustered, it will be and it will not happen. So saying it is a value statement. Like, I support, like, like in, in my fantasy world, like D.C. is a state as opposed to like, well, will you like, do you support it in the way that you will make it happen? And like, that's the question they are asking. Mm-hmm. And there is in the like democratic world, progressive world. Uh, I think this is true in like the democratic socialist world. It's true in like all of them, like uh, the moderate democratic world. This like is across the coalition. There is just a lack of attention on the basic blocking and tackling of governance. Like, are you going to like, will this bill get out of committee? Like, this is why I am such an like an unbelievably intense broken record on the filibuster, because if you don't do something about the filibuster, then virtually everything else you're talking about nationally is not going to happen. Like everything is dead letter. All of it was simply, it's like the equivalent of talking about a dream you had once, right? It's like, like all these things happen. They're like, and then I woke up because like none of them actually happened. Like that whole primary campaign where people are arguing about, you know, regulations on electricity and what year they're going to come into play and all this shit. It's not going to happen if you don't get rid of the filibuster or find some other way of defanging it. So it's like there's this endless jockeying on value statements about policy without demanding that politicians commit to the thing that would make that policy possible. And that ends up being very true in states too, where there's a lot less focus, there's less information, um, there's less coverage. So like people often don't even know like why things are or are not happening. Like when something doesn't happen that's big in the US Congress, like there's a mill, like the New York Times and Vox and like the Washington Post and like the CNN and like everybody's like arguing about it. So you can actually figure out what happened. Like often you don't even know what happened in like the Connecticut, um, you know, legislature, the California legislature. Like I live here, it's hard. It's not impossible to follow, but it's a big state. It's not that easy to follow. You'd think it would be easier. And it's really important to figure out like where like where the power is and where things are getting bottled up and what you're going to do about that. Like, and oftentimes that ends up conflicting with things you want, right? Mm-hmm. So to what I was saying earlier about high-speed rail, one of the issues in high-speed rail, like, like every politician in California, certainly a democratic politician, is conceptually in favor of high-speed rail. But what they are not actually in favor of is changing the way these decisions are made about like what you can and can't do at the local level and where you can build and like what you do in terms of compensating people and who can hold things up to get it there. A lot of politicians are pro like all kinds of Yimby housing stuff, but they're not pro actually changing the amount of power that some of these neighborhood groups have to block everything in city councils or, you know, that these um, uh, uh, feedback structures have. And like, I get it, it like puts your values in tension with each other. But the question in governance is not what you support. It's what you will do to pass what you support. It's like what you will do, like what you will deliver. And like, this is a point I want to make like endlessly on California, but it also applies to national Democrats and applies all over. When you say you support things and you don't deliver them, people become cynical about government and about you. Like it is an incredible gift to conservatism. And not only that, it's true. Like they are right. Like you are captured. And so it's like, yeah, like my thing, not like what do you support, but like what will you do? And like California politicians support all kinds of good stuff. Like I agree with a lot of it. But what they do, 
it's not very inspiring. Well, and I think, you know, uh, people can can misunderstand this, actually. But something that you saw a lot in, in the Democratic primary, because, you know, voters are aware that sometimes politicians say they want to change something and then it doesn't really change. And there was a lot of flight among activist groups to sort of get people to try to endorse the extreme versions of policy proposals. Right. So like. Not only like, do you want to expand healthcare coverage, but do you want to have a Medicare for all system? Not only do you want to like make immigration enforcement more humane, but I want you to say there will be a deportation moratorium. I want you to say you'll decriminalize um, unauthorized border crossing. But in your terms, right, all people are doing with that is they're like ratcheting up the level of broken, uncredible promises, right? You're like starting with something that might not really happen. And then you're just promising that like, okay, this truck that's fake is also going to be full of unicorns, right? And the real measure of what politicians care about is actually um, how compromising they are on it, right? Like the way you can tell the Democratic Party, uh, particularly in its congressional manifestation, is incredibly sincere about its desire to get more people to have health insurance is exactly that they are so eager to embrace like watered down versions of anything. It's like they'll do anything, right? <laughs> like if it gets more people health insurance and they all will. Right. Like the really like Bernie Sanders will be like, yes, I'll do the Affordable Care Act. I'll throw in this community health centers thing. It's like they are desperate to get more health insurance to more people. Housing is the opposite of that, right? The politicians get incredibly fussy. So it's like, yes, I'm for more housing, but it has to be exactly this kind of housing and has to have this level of affordability. And it can get really dangerous. It was an interesting report came out recently about uh, Minneapolis, which actually passed a zoning reform that... Um, got a lot of attention. And they legalized uh, triplexes uh, throughout the city. But it turns out that almost nobody has built any triplexes in Minneapolis because the terms under which they were allowed is like, it's so incredibly precise, right? It was like, you can have a three-unit structure here, but it's got to be like this. It's got to be like that. It's got to be like that. And it just turned out nobody wanted to do it. Right. And, and this is an interesting question in, in my mind about Portland, which passed a very ambitious sort of zoning overhaul that came as a result of a, a really kind of detailed negotiation between different community groups, stakeholders, things like that. But it's like really complicated. It's hard for me to even summarize it. Now, Alfred, too, did a good um, uh, graphic about it that you can you can find on the Sightline Institute. Uh, I will have an article forthcoming about it soon. But it's like the big question is like, will anyone actually want to build these six unit apartment buildings versus saying something like as an elected official, like I will I believe there is a housing crisis. I will vote for any legislation that makes it easier to build houses. Right. Like that's what the pro housing legislator says, not just like I have this like one special vision in my mind of what people should be allowed to do. But like, I think this is a big problem. And it was the same with high speed rail, essentially, right? It was like, everybody wanted this fast train from Los Angeles to San Francisco, but only if it could be just so, right? And ultimately, every single different person's just so about it. Like, it was in conflict with one another and it blew costs up to whatever because the nature of trains, right? It's like they got to go straight and they can only have so many stops and it just like it can't be perfect for everyone. 
Um, and and you have to you have to make a decision and be willing to say yes to a specific plan. And that's like it's hard in politics, but it's how you know what people really care about. Do you think it'd be easier if there were a billion Americans? Yes. No, um, these are closely connected to the themes of my forthcoming book, One Billion Americans, because obviously if we had one billion Americans, we would need to have more housing and we would need to have more transportation infrastructure for them. Chapter seven and eight of the book talk about this and will solve all these problems. Interestingly, it will also solve these problems even if we don't have one billion Americans. Uh, so you, you can learn a lot there and you should pre-order it because pre-orders are great. Do you like pre-orders? I do love pre-orders. I mean, I got a, I got a, a special advance copy because I'm a, I'm a blurber. So no, I understand. But, I understand. But, but, you're, but, uh, you're among you're among the elect. I'm among the elect. Uh, but, uh, but but I'm a but but pre-orders are everything. So people should pre-order. Exactly. That's where it goes. Um, no, actually, and if you pre-order fast, you are running out of time. But if you pre-order fast and you tweet uh, your proof of purchase, you will get into the Great Weeds White Paper Lottery. We will force Jane and Dara and myself to discuss uh, a research paper of your choice. It's great fun. Um, enjoy. Thanks, uh, Ezra. Thanks to our sponsors. Thanks, as always, to our producer, Jeffrey Geld. And the Weeds will be back on Tuesday. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com.